What's up, guys? Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. This is your host, Walker Near. The music for today's show is provided by Misha Zarin. So many thanks to Misha. I strongly encourage people to check out their local food bank to see how they can help, as food banks like Ozark's Food Harvest here in my town are helping families overcome food insecurity, which is a problem we need to solve. I also invite you to follow me on social media, such as Instagram, Twitter, or Facebook, at The Walk Show or The Walk Show Pod. Links for that are directly in the show notes. This week, we are joined by Rachel Grant, who is a sexual abuse recovery coach and author of Beyond Surviving, the final stage in recovery from sexual abuse. Rachel shares her own story, along with some of the steps she has taken in her own life and also helped others to take to move beyond surviving. Rachel offers a variety of resources with information on her website and YouTube channel, as well as in coaching directly. Rachel is an incredibly inspiring person, and I'm very humbled to share her work. So let's get over to the conversation. Welcome to the Walk Show Podcast. Rachel Grant, thank you so much for joining. How are you doing this evening? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me as your guest. Yeah, for sure. So, um, Rachel, your business is uh, Rachel Rachel Grant Coaching, uh, which is also rachelgrantcoaching.com is the website. Um, but you're primarily focused on, on, on working with individuals who are survivors of uh, sexual abuse. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, in looking, um, you know, I've looked at your website and, 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 and through some of your YouTube videos, which the videos you have are, are great. I will, I'll definitely have a link to the, the YouTube channel in the, in the show notes, but I really suggest that people go check it out because you've got some really great long form content where you've got longer conversations, interviews, you've got some little, like, I don't know what I'll call. Bite size. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah. because you've got some that are like maybe, maybe you know, two to three minutes where okay. you explain an idea or expand on something. And then you've got some that are even shorter than that. that are like under a minute that are more like image and text-based kind of things. Um, but it's, it's really great. It's a, it's a lot of really cool content and I like the variety of it. So it's like, how much time do you have? There's something that you can, you know, fit in there still. Um, so I, you know, I guess I'll just kind of start, uh, who is Rachel Grant? Where, where are you originally from? Um, how do you find yourself in this work? Thank you. Wow. You know, thanks for the feedback about the YouTube channel, just in the world of becoming an entrepreneur and then finding myself in this space of doing work with survivors of childhood sexual abuse and in many ways, stepping into kind of the public forum, man, finding myself on YouTube. My partner the other day, we were scrolling through and he's like, oh, you're there you are. (laughs) Yeah, there I am. So finding ways to make it, you know, yes, engaging, especially around a topic that is, you know, tough, uh, sexual abuse. Um, so thank you for um, plugging that. And and I definitely encourage anybody listening to go check it out. I hope you'll find really great resources that'll support you in your healing. And yes, if you had told little redhead Oklahoma girl when she was five years old that many, many, many decades later, she would be, you know, doing interviews and talking about this sort of thing and have a YouTube channel, have a podcast, all these things. Uh, no, uh, that would not have been her immediate, like, yes, let's do that. So, um, you know, I have come into this work by way of my own experiences of sexual trauma. It's not uncommon, of course, for for people who go into healing professions to have had their own experiences with that. And and my story really, you know, kind of starts around the age of five. Uh, I grew up in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. It's a little town north of Tulsa. The north border is Kansas. And um, I lived with my mom and my dad. And um, I had an older brother and sister, but they were much older, like nine and 10 years older. So when I was five, they were really like out in the world and out and about doing their own things. And we had some extra space in our house. And so my grandfather, my mother's father came to live with our family. And at that time, I was really stoked about this walker because he was a captive audience, like immediately, I was just up under his feet all the time. And we would, you know, play and hang out and spend a lot of time on the front porch swing as one does in the country. And uh, for me, he really became a very close companion and source of nurturing and comfort and fun. And, um, and I really adored him. 
as time went on, I was growing up and around the age of 10, one day uh, we were sitting out on the front porch swing and snuggled up. I was always a very cuddly, affectionate kid. And he reached around and grabbed my breast. Mm. And I, my initial response as a 10 year old is just to wiggle, right? Like I don't, I'm not thinking a lot about it. I'm just thinking, oh, maybe he didn't realize I barely have a relationship to that part of my body at that age anyway. You know, I'm just right. coming into this kind of general understanding. Um, we didn't start, you know, body education the way that we do these days, you know, at right. a much younger age. So he, you know, gripped a hold of me tighter and continued um, molesting me. And I dissociated. I didn't know that's what I was doing, of course. <laughs> but I remember feeling kind of very floaty and just out of it and confused. And, and there was this very clear moment of kind of snapping back. And I was able to escape. I was able to, at that point, kind of flight, right? Jump up, run away. And I ran back to my parents' bedroom. It's always an interesting choice when I think about that moment, like where I went for safety and comfort. Um, but I went right to the my parents' bed, like was up against, there was a little gap between the bed and the wall. And I just dropped in to that little bitty space, right? And curled up and was just in a little tight ball. And I was crying and I was upset and... You know, what I know now and certainly have heard many stories is it's but it still is profoundly amazing to me how quickly the the mind um, wants to try to make sense of what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so I'm sitting there in that terror and that fear trying to contextualize what's gone on. And those thoughts are just so immediate, right? Like, what did I do? I must have done something bad. Um, man, I must, you know, I must deserve this. And the abuse continued for quite some time. It escalated. And uh, one day, my mom just happened to be walking by the window that looked out on the front porch. Oftentimes, we were out on the porch. Also, like, weird location, right, um, for, for abuse. But it's a good thing to note that abuse and trauma can be happening. Oftentimes people think that it's like in the basements and it's, you know, it's this closed door thing. And so watch out for the kids being in this like, but like literally I'm sitting outside on the front porch, right. um, people walking by, you know, these sorts of things, but she saw what he was doing and she came tearing out onto the front porch and just snatched me away from him. And my mom and my dad immediately got him out of our home which I'm very, very thankful for. I know yeah. having done this work for a long time that there are too many stories of parents who do not believe the child, don't protect the child, continue, you know, in being in relationship with the abuser, these sorts of things. And so I always give, you know, mad props <laughs> to my mom and dad um, for that moment and that decision that they made. And, um, you know, after that, once he was out of the house, you know, great, he's physically out of the house, but the impact of this trauma, of course, that only was just starting. Right. And this is one of the, I think, things that pisses me off the most about abuse is, you know, the, for me, the trauma, there's some sense that the abuse might've been happening earlier, but I don't only have very vague. So I usually mark it at age 10, um, you know, for a year and a half. But then for the next 20 years of my life, right, I'm, I'm dealing with all the repercussions. And at that time, my parents, you know, they got me into a counseling situation all of like maybe three times. Okay. <laughs> I was like, are you crazy? Like, I'm not talking to this person. I want to talk about this. I want to mm -hmm. deal with this. I just want to pretend that everything's okay. Right? right. I just want to be a normal little girl and do normal little girl things. And can't we all just forget this? And that's um, just such a part of the healing process. You know, when I think about the stages of healing, this is really what I often describe as the victim stage. So we're in that place of denial. We're not wanting to look at it. We don't want to deal with it. We want to pretend that everything's okay. And, and I was solidly locked in that stage until about the age of 18, 19. Mm. I mean, that doesn't mean I wasn't being impacted, right? Like I had all kinds of struggles in my teenage years. 
And, um, but it was at the age of 18 when I started dating someone um, pretty seriously that I, well, it just became very clear that I didn't know what I was doing. <laughs> like mm. I was all kinds of messed up. I was all, I didn't know how to set boundaries. I was super reactive. I was completely insecure and um, he actually really helped me in facing the truth that I was struggling because of this abuse that I had never dealt with. Mm-hmm. And so I started doing some counseling. And um, this same boy who helped me see that um, I stayed with for 10 years. And unfortunately, in the in that time, the relationship um, devolved and it became very abusive. And so I was on one hand trying to deal with childhood trauma while experiencing adult trauma. And uh, when he and I divorced, I just was at a crossroads. I was sitting in my new apartment and all I had was a sleeping bag and a lamp. I don't know if you've ever had a moment like that, Walker, but you're just like, oh, sure. Like, what is happening here? Like, it's a real like facing yourself moment. Like, how is this my life? Right. How am I this person? What am I going to do? Like, I really felt so much despair and fear in that moment about my future. Yeah. Because even though I'd been doing therapy and I was in that survivor stage where I was starting to acknowledge what had happened and I was starting to understand like the reasons why I struggled and the ways that I struggled, I hadn't really been given any real tools for change. And I, in that moment, just felt so strongly, like, I have got to do something, like, right now, or this is going to be my life, like, I'm going to spend the rest of my life surviving and just trying to get by. And so that's really the moment in my life. Um, That was 2006, when I decided, like, enough is enough. I got to figure this out. So I just started reading everything I could and started using myself as a guinea pig, trying different things. I eventually started kind of writing down my own ideas. I had a couple of women in my church community at the time I was in church and um, they were happy to be my guinea pigs. Thank goodness. (laughs) Like, let's try this out. Let's see if this helps. And long story short, um, I did my master's in counseling psychology and I did some studying of neuroscience and I really came to understand and blend the work that I had done in that program with my background in education because I was actually a teacher and mm. a nanny. Um, that was the word my I thought that's what I was going to do with my life was was be a teacher. I guess in some ways I am. It's just yeah, a different topic, so. you know. Right. Um, <laughs> so and then I, you know, I really started working with people more formally and developed the Beyond Surviving program. Mm-hmm. And so have been doing that work since 2007 with men and women, you know, all over the country, all over the world. It's one of the things I love about being a sexual abuse recovery coach um, rather than a therapist. The approach is different. I get to work with people um, no matter where they are in the world. And, um, And my life today is just hands down, completely, totally different. Um, sometimes I step back from it and think, wow, I never really would have thought this was possible. And of course it's my great joy to get to walk alongside other people to help them, you know, claim that for themselves too. Yeah. That's, um, that's a a very, very powerful story. Um, that that you just shared. I'm, I'm so grateful that you've, (laughs) we're 10 minutes in and I'm already thanking you for being on the show again. But the reason I say that is because, and, and I don't say this in a, in a flippant way at all. Um, I honestly, every, every, well, I, I can't say every, cause I don't, every woman I know I'm not that close with, but every woman that I, that I know that I have any sort of like closeness with has a story of either surviving some sort of sexual abuse or narrowly escaping that mm-hmm. scenario. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, I'm, I'm not trying to, to share anyone else's story or anything like that, that, you know, that that's theirs to share. But my point just being like, this is something that is so widespread. Yes. Um, and, and I, I just, I, that, that's why I was so eager to, to have you come on the show and, and talk about your work because I, I you know, as a, a six foot five <laughs> white guy, um, and I was always the tallest kid the whole time, right? Oh like, man. <laughs> sure. I, I, just, I just, you know, I mean, I, and I have, I mean, I have, I have two podcasts, so clearly I have a loud mouth. Um, <laughs> but I have, I mean, I've been spared probably warranted <laughs> confrontations mm. because of, of my size and, and, sure. and 
and gender and, and all that stuff. And I just, it, it just breaks my heart to, to know that people, um, endure things like this, but it's so, um, I don't know. It's, it's like the, the little, the little starlight in the, in the sea of, of darkness that there are people like you out that out here that are, are, are dedicating their lives to helping people get through this. Um, and it, it's something else that, that you kind of touched on. Although I will say I, your husband's story was interesting because I, I thought it was going to go positive And I was like smiling at one point as you were talking about it. And then it, it took a turn again. Mm. So I, you can see my face, the listeners can't, but I, I wasn't trying to, <laughs> to smile inappropriately. Um, no anyway, the, 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 um, my point again is just, I, I guess just that I, I think it's, it's remarkable how, um, how free, how prevalent this is. And I think something that you said, at least at the beginning of that story was that, that he had of, of that individual was that he kind of helped you face or come to, to maybe understand some of what had happened when you were younger. And maybe the rest of that story is not, (laughs) it's not something we want to mimic at all, but, but I think it's important to understand that like the key that I took away, the thing that resonated with me there is that someone else helped you see it. Mm -hmm. And the point being that like, this isn't something that people have to feel alone or that they have to face alone. Right. Oh, because I think sure. that's something that you spoke to when you're talking about as a child, like it's something that, you know, maybe there's a tendency to want to repress it or to want to just like, eh, let's just, let's just move on. And, um, and you don't have to do that. Um, there are people that are committed to this. Well, absolutely. Yeah. You know, this is one of the reasons at this stage in my my journey where I'm always so thankful when I have a platform to tell my story and to talk about this topic. I think, you know, we're we're lucky that we're living in a time where addressing this is not quite as t- taboo. I think we have more work to do, but we're making a lot of progress, certainly compared to the 1980s when I was, you know, going through um, what I was going through. And, you know, in in these days right now, 2020, you know, we're going through a pandemic. So this word is now quite a buzzword. But, you know, prior to that happening, this is really how in my circles, in my communities, people who have been doing advocacy work and work around trauma healing have been describing this, what's been going on as a pandemic for quite some time, because it absolutely reaches into every corner into every socioeconomic, you know, level, race, gender, gender orientation. Studies are starting to show that statistically we think about one in three women have experienced a, a trauma like this, an abuse like this, and that we used to, used, the, the statistic used to be one in six men. But as men are now starting to report more, because now normalizing that for men is starting to happen and they're coming forward with their stories. We're starting to see that that statistic might actually be closer to equal. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, so I don't, I don't, I, yeah. Um, when, when I was a kid, I was terrified of being kidnapped. Now mm-hmm. I don't know why, because I, I didn't have any idea of what would happen if I was kidnapped. Right. I just, I think it was because when I was real little, like I had to go to the video store and make a video so that the police would have a video for if I was kidnapped kind of thing. Right. And, and then you go to school and there was just all this conversation about yeah. like, don't talk to anyone with candy. Don't talk to anyone with oh, a puppy. Man. Right. And so I was just like, okay, I'll never go outside. I promise. Like, you know? <laughs> right. Like, man. And so, and so then, um, as I, you know, as I grew up and, and kind of got, got past that or whatever, you know, I would make fun of myself as a kid for, for thinking that way. And my friends and family would be like, oh, you were so ridiculous or whatever. Mm-hmm. Well, then probably three years ago, maybe not even that long, um, the New York Times podcast, The Daily, had a, a, a podcast that was about um, the amount of um, uh, child sexual abuse stuff that is posted on the internet. And it's like, it's insane. Like it's, it's, it's literally unbelievable. Like I don't even want to say the number because I don't, I don't remember exactly what it is. And I would probably underestimate it because it's, it's that unbelievable. Right. Yeah. And so in the face of something that is so daunting and so big, then it's very easily, it's very easy for people who have experienced that trauma to then exactly, as you say, kind of become, you know, entrenched in the denial 
or feel very, very alone, which is such a wild thing, right? On one hand, we know the statistics that there are so many people, but yet the, the experience is still so very isolating mm -hmm. and the messaging still continues to be a little less so these days, but still often continues to be in this camp of like, well, just deal with it, right? Or, oh, I guess this, you know, it's a life sentence. And, you know, that's absolutely why I do the work I do and why I tell my story because of what, what you were saying earlier. Like, I absolutely want people to know this is not a life sentence. Right. You know, you're not meant to spend the rest of your life in recovery. Yeah, you know, we always have opportunity to grow and to heal and to learn things about ourselves. But recovery, when we're stuck in that place of like having to look at and having to work with and having to deal with this abuse, I 100% believe that there is an end date on that for everybody. Yeah. What that requires, though, is access to resources, right? Um, changing the dialogue and um, the conversation that we're having about trauma. I sometimes um, describe it as like if you see somebody with a broken leg, you know, you don't say to that person, well, shit, sorry, I guess you're just gonna have to live with a broken leg the rest of your life. Right. And trauma is an injury in the same way that a broken leg is an injury. It injures the brain, it injures the nervous system, it injures the psyche. And so the good news is that just like we have ways to repair the leg and help the leg heal and get back to, you know, normal, quote unquote, <laughs> in the world of people, we don't like to use that word, right? But we do the same thing with healing trauma, heal the injury heal the injury and so that we can come out of that stage of recovery and we can reclaim our lives and and move forward business is a, a, a coaching or your practice is a coaching practice, but you have a master's degree in psychology. I do. Yeah. So, so I personally have a, a, a little tiny bit of experience with, with working with a psychologist and I've been working with a, a life coach for uh, about a year now. And I, I tend to kind of compare them a lot. Um, now I'm, I'm you know fortunate enough that I'm not, not working with them to, to overcome a specific acute trauma like that, as much as just trying to get my life in order in, in right more on, general man. sense. We all need guides and mentors in this world. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, life is complex. <laughs> yes. Well, so what I wanted to ask you though is because I, I, I've I've tried to, to to understand the differences between mm -hmm. coaching and psychology, and I understand credential wise, there's you know psychology uh, maybe a lot more at least traditional education and and those sorts of things. Can you elaborate on, on oh, yeah. how you're blending these things and, and why you're doing it the way you are? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so um, when I started my master's program, I went in with the intention of becoming a marriage and family therapist. I thought, okay, that's going to be my lane. That's what I'm going to do. And um, but at the same time, I because I often do things, you know, out of order. I'm kind of a rebel in that way. <laughs> so I started doing the work before, you know, but in a careful way. But just again with those women, right? And so I was already kind of building a curriculum and thinking about how I wanted to approach, you know, working with this. And um, and then when I stepped into the program, my my degree program, a couple of things happened. The first thing was in my legal and ethics class. 
Mm. Um, Professor Joseph Coyne. I always say his name because he's one of those mentors and guides in my life that helped me along. And he's there talking about all the things that you need to do as a therapist on the legal ethics side. The ethics, I had no problem with. The legal side, I had lots of issues with. Mm-hmm. The, the rules and the, the standards, they made no sense to me. Um, and I just, I, because I'm a rebel, <laughs> I was like, I'm going to break these rules, probably, likely. And that's not going to bode well for me or for people coming into therapy who have the expectation, right, of that particular container. Mm. And by rules that I mean breaking, like things that just didn't make sense. Like, oh, you have to report this 16-year-old kid who's having sex with this 16-year-old kid because they're both boys. And we still have sodomy laws. And so Uh blah, blah, blah. I was like, "Uh -uh, I'm not getting into any of that. I don't want to spend a minute of my time with stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And then then I was doing a class with Dan Klerman, another wonderful professor who became a really great mentor. And that was on um, group dynamics. And he was talking a lot more about coaching and the way that you coach and work. And and so um, as I started thinking about what a therapist is really up to, there are a couple of things that therapists do that coaches don't do. One of them, very simply, is diagnosing. Therapists, in order to get paid, unless they're doing private pay, have to submit a diagnosis to the insurance company. And this was just another thing I didn't want to deal with. I wasn't interested in diagnosing and labeling. Mm -hmm. Therapy also is often a container in which people arrive as they are. And the, the, the person speaking, the client, the patient, whatever you want to call it, is often driving the conversation. So like when I would go to therapy, I would sit down and I would just start talking like whatever was on my mind. And it could go, you know, anywhere from the fight I was having with my boyfriend to what something that was happening at work to feeling suicidal. And the therapist is in many ways just, you know, reflecting and helping, asking good questions, creating space. And that is a critical thing for people to get to experience. Like it, it creates nurturing and, and safety and spaciousness for people to be heard and be seen in ways that maybe they haven't before. But what I also began to understand about a lot of therapy is that um, it was looked down upon for you to insert yourself into the, the dialogue very mm-hmm. much and certainly to insert your story. But what I was hearing from all the women that I was working with was that part of why what we were doing was so helpful is that I was using narrative. This goes back to my Oklahoma self, right? My dad was an amazing storyteller Mm. and I grew up around story and life lessons being illustrated through narratives. And so as I was telling, you know, my story, I would, you know, they would reflect back. Oh my gosh, that's so helpful to hear like that's how it was for you here's what you did and here's how it is now Mm. and so that was really important to me i wanted to have that access and then finally i just wanted to have access to working more broadly this as we've talked about is a pandemic and so that means that there are people in very rural areas who don't have access to care there are people of color who don't have access to care there are people in the world because of the country that they're in don't have access to care but by being a coach and not being limited as a therapist is to just working in their region i'm able to work with people all over the place And the final, final piece of the puzzle that like really bring it home for me as far as coaching is that for me, where I'm working is really with people who are sick and tired of feeling broken and unfixable. And like, I'm going around this mountain again. I often say people who come to me are very book smart about trauma. Ooh, they've read all the books, <laughs> you know, they know uh, they know all the lingo, but they still feel stuck. And that's because they're not getting any specific resource, tool, skill, strategy. And so in Beyond Surviving, the focus is always, yes, here's what happened. Here's how that impacted. And here's why. Here's why you're doing the things you're doing now because of that. But very quickly, what are we going to do about that? And coaching gives me the space to do that, to bring in my story, to create a curriculum, the Beyond Surviving program. So... Um, People are not coming in and just dropping. I don't do drop-in sessions. We don't do that. It's we're here's step one, here's step two, here's step three. 
part of the reason why I do it that way, Walker, is because I have spent, you know, 13 years solely focused on this issue and healing. And what I've noticed is that if we have to do things in, that's maybe a strong word to use, like we have to, but I'm going to go with it today. We have to (laughs) do things (laughs) in a particular order in order to maximize healing and minimize re-traumatization. Because what I absolutely know is that a lot of people go into therapy and they're kind of, they, the therapist will ask questions and will drive the conversation sometimes towards things that they're not actually prepared. They don't have the skills and tools to address. They don't have the nervous system regulation in place to help prevent them from getting really re-traumatized. Um, and so that's why we do things in a very specific order so that everything builds. That really draws on my background in education. That's where that education piece did come in handy. Right. <laughs> you know, developing a curriculum, thinking about scaffolding, learning, breaking mm. things down into smaller parts. Um, so that's a very long answer to, you know, the difference between therapy and coaching and why I went the coaching route um, versus therapy. Um, but yeah, I think it's a really, I love therapy. I love therapists. I think it's just important that people who are in their healing journey, think about the different types of support that are available. Mm -hmm. And therapy is a great type of support to get when you're in that survivor stage and you just need to talk like you're ready to talk. Like that was me at 18 Mm -hmm. when it was time to acknowledge. Yeah. Like shit's broken. I'm hurt. I'm a mess. I need help. Mm -hmm. I need to talk about this. I need to finally acknowledge this. Therapy is a wonderful place for that. But mm-hmm. don't get stuck there. Don't get stuck there. There is a next step. I call that beyond surviving where you move forward. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that title. Um, and I, I mean, you said it earlier when you said, you know, I got to a point where I didn't want to just be surviving anymore. Right. And right. so um, I really, I, yeah, I, I really, I think that's a, a very inspiring <laughs> kind of thing to, to, to understand that there is something after that and that, life can return to a place where that event or that series of events or, or, you know, that trauma is not coloring every moment Mm -hmm. or every aspect Mm -hmm. of it. Right. Yeah. Can I just say something about that real quick is, which is to, to name what that actually means is not to then pretend that none of this ever happened Right. to not like think that who I am doesn't have anything to do with what happened to me. Of course, of course, the things that I do and how I see things and how I react and respond sometimes is tied to that. But the difference is when you're in the place of recovery, like everything is trauma related. Right. And it's like this, you know, it's like this big ball and it's like always in front of you and you're, you know, trying to figure it out and you're trying to understand the layers and pull things apart. But in the place of beyond surviving, the experience becomes integrated. It Mm. becomes like, your life is like this huge tapestry of so many experiences and who I am is a composite of all of those experiences. The abuse being one, one of millions. And so in the place of beyond surviving, we have the grounding and the perspective and the relationship to those experiences where the abuse is a thread in the tapestry. Mm -hmm. It is not the tapestry. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I, 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 I'm, I'm honestly struggling a little bit because I don't want to make any of this about me because I think what you're Do talking it, about is so powerful, Whatever you're but... relating to is good. It's yeah. good to <laughs> hear yourself uh, and others. Yes. Yeah. Well, it, 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 I mean, I, you know, so for me, probably the most traumatic thing that I've ever, you know, faced was, was my father passed away when I was 20 years old and, and I didn't expect, he was 54 and it was, you know, alcoholism and very unexpected for me at that mm. time, at least. Um, and and I've I've certainly worked on it for a long time, and and I'm at a, a, a what I feel like is a really healthy place with it now. And and what you just said though, the reason it made me think of it is because that was kind of the conclusion that I eventually was able to reach was that when I was so traumatized by his passing, it was because that was the only thing I thought about. Like I was always anything that had to do with him, it was like, yeah, that was true, and now he's gone, and it yeah. was so it was constantly bringing it back to this pain. And I got to a point eventually where it was like, well, the reason that that pain was so significant is because it mattered so much and it mattered so much for his whole life, at least as for long as I was there. <laughs> and he died one day. He didn't die for 30 or 20 years. Right. Like it was one day. And and so not that I ignore that or pretend certainly can't pretend that it didn't happen. But um, 
kind of what you talked about, recognizing it as part of the whole and, and mm-hmm. again, not, not avoiding recognizing or acknowledging that he's gone now, but also not not insisting on that being the thing that I always look at when I think of him, right? Does yes. that make sense? Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So, you know, there are a couple of things that that brings to mind. Thank you for sharing that. And yeah, you know, the loss, trauma is trauma is trauma, by the way, right? Like, sure. um, you know, there's, you know, Victor Frankl has this great saying that, you know, I'm going to butcher it a little bit, but essentially that trauma is like pain. Suffering is like a gas. It fills whatever space there is mm. to fill. And so um, like my pain is my pain. Your pain is your pain. And they're equal. <laughs> they, they count. They both count. There are no points in trauma, in other words. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I get that. <laughs> and I get so, that. Yeah. And so when we, you know, sit with the pain of our experience, you know, it is, it's, it's dominant. It's the dominant thing. It's the dominant and how we think about it, how we relate to it. And so I sometimes describe healing as like, yes, you can see the scar on your knee, but it doesn't bring up all of the same reactions and feelings and pain and you don't have to sit with it, you know, all that, like you can acknowledge it, you know, it's there. And I think one of the biggest things, you know, that we're, we're dealing with in the world of sexual abuse is that we also know that the majority of abusers are people who are known to the victim. And because of that, like my grandfather, he, I loved him. You know, he was fun. He was, you know, interesting and we played games together and he helped me sneak snacks, you know, (laughs) like there are all these really good memories. And then there are all of these other memories. And so this is the duality and it's uncomfortable. It's so extremely uncomfortable that people either sometimes they will villainize, completely villainize the abuser, right? It's a very either or conversation, right? Or they try to kind of mitigate, ignore their pain in order to hold on to the the things that are good, that were right. good about that. And I think a huge part of the work that I do with my, my clients is really helping them reconcile that duality. How do we hold both of those things at the same time without minimizing or dismissing our experience? Man, that is so, that is so incredible. That is, so that's something that I've been stuck on, that, that idea more broadly uh, hmm. of the duality that I've been stuck on for the better part of this year. And people who've listened to a lot of episodes are probably like, oh my God, here he goes again. But too bad because, right. uh, because that is so, it's so fascinating. It's, it's, it's the idea of holding exactly what you just said. It's holding two things at once that are, are, seem opposite and seem like they should be mutually exclusive and like that's the real hard work of life right is yeah. is being able to find that and hold those two things at once i was talking with another another guest one time about it and i have no idea who said the quote but he was like oh yeah that's like this one quote uh, contradiction contradiction is the lever of transcendence mm. and i was just like I don't get tattoos, but if I did, I might get that one. Like, like that is. Where would so, you get it, Walker? Where would yeah. you get it? <laughs> Just all of my back, of course. Um, <laughs> I mean, I'm a man of dignity. Um, not that anyone that has that tattoo is not it does not have dignity. I'm just teasing. But anyway, um, the point yeah, is, yeah, it's that, so true, though. Yeah, yeah, like it's so that it's so crazy how important that concept is and how little it's talked about anyway i don't mean to talk over you (laughs) no no you're not at all no this is great so yeah so what's in important about that is a lot of what i tried to do in my own healing and what i see a lot of people who've experienced sexual trauma trying to do is bypass they try to get to the end of that they try to get to that place but what has to happen first is actually getting super super angry like tapping into and feeling they're first of all shifting the shame right getting out of that sense of i caused this i did something i'm at fault for some reason and then when you do that then that will give you access to your anger Mm -hmm. and your upset and being able it doesn't even have to be like rage okay when i say like get super super this that doesn't mean you're like throwing shit (laughs) it just means all of the feelings that you suppressed in order to hold it together you let it go and so that you allow yourself to get angry at the person and not protective of the person 
And on the other side of that, along with some other, you know, pieces of the puzzle, then you create spaciousness where you can access that kind of holding that kind of duality. Mm -hmm. But if we bypass all of that other stuff, then that's how we end up re-traumatized because it's like we're making ourselves, you know, be compassionate. We're making ourselves have empathy. We're making ourselves forgive these sorts of things. And then that's just another denial of ourself, which is a reiteration of trauma. What would you say is, and I don't know if the biggest is the right way to phrase it, but what is, what is one of the primary or the most common misconceptions that survivors have about themselves? Ooh, that's a good question, Walker. Well, what I would offer in response to that is that I'm the only one. Mm. Nobody else struggles this way. I'm the only one who, you know, gets super, super upset because of the Tupperware drawer being out of order. Right. <laughs> no, did that too. Right. Um, I'm the only one who walks into a room and immediately feels like I don't belong. Right. I'm the only one who, God, I'm craving connection and love and intimacy. But as soon as I have it, I run away. And this is, again, because of the way that mental illness and um, the injury of trauma is treated. Mm. You know, uh, it's, it's pathologized, it's stigmatized. And so we don't talk about it, but we're doing better, right? We're here, we're doing right. it. Um, and, but people can end up very isolated. And because there's, all, there's this narrative of like, particularly in the U.S., the pull your boot self up by the bootstraps idea, Ugh. right? Like you should just be able to get over it. What, what do you mean? That was like 20 years ago. Like, come on already, let it go, move on. And absolutely, yes. I mean, I'm sitting here today saying, yes, please do let it go and move on. But that has to happen after a process. That's like the end game. There are steps that we have to take to get there. And so over and over again, you know, in my program, I mostly work with people one-on-one, -on -one, but I do two group programs a year and I do a monthly group call that all of my clients, whether they're one-on-one -on -one or, or in the group come to. And again and again and again, they're like, wait, what? You did that? I, huh? She struggles with that too? Oh my gosh, he had that problem? That's the other thing when we start to notice when I have my men and women together, mm. that's a really powerful time of healing mm. because we start to see, look, we all are suffering, you know, right. whether you were, you know, harmed at the hands of a man or a woman, this is a place to heal those kinds right. of, you know, relationships. So no, you're not alone. You're not unique. And that is because, again, trauma is an injury. If somebody falls and breaks their leg, we don't go, oh, well, that was your fault. Why, why, you know, <laughs> I guess that's just you. You're just, you know. Yeah. You know, and it's because of the impact of trauma and the way that it works that we have all of these common, similar outcomes. Yeah. Well, and something that I've thought of as you've been explaining this is, you know, the, the broken leg example is so, is so good. And, and, and the word trauma, I think, is actually which I'm sure is why you selected it since this is your <laughs> work. Um, but it's such a good word because, you know, when we talk about things like mental illness and like you were talking about earlier with like, if you're going to be a psychologist, you have to diagnose people, right? Yeah. If someone was diagnosed with a broken leg, we don't look at that person for the rest of their life as the guy who had a broken leg or the gal who had a broken leg. Yeah. But if you get diagnosed with depression or anxiety, it's like, Oh, well that per that's the depressed person or that's the exactly. whatever. It's like, 
That's oh my gosh. Not to be flippant with the terms, but that's crazy. Like, why are we right. doing that? <laughs> well, totally. Okay. You want to take it to another spot? Okay. Yeah. So when I was in this relationship, right, about um in my 20s. So I want to say I was probably about maybe 20 or 21. Mm-hmm. Um the relationship was dangerous. I was violent. He was violent. There was so much depression and, you know, just dysfunction. And one of my ways of trying to gain control in the world and in relationship was um, through suicide, suicide attempts. Right. And that happened. And I got put into um, an inpatient facility, Mm -hmm. like for a week, two weeks. Mm -hmm. And in the midst of being there, the psychiatrist that I'm working with says, you know, you have bipolar, not bipolar, sorry, borderline personality disorder. Mm. Mind you, he does not go on to explain what that is, talk about it at all, explore anything with me. All he does is tell my boyfriend to get out of town. Don't deal with this. Wow. Yeah. So I come out of this facility with this label now, borderline personality disorder. And I'm like, when, when you're somebody who's experienced a lot of trauma and you're trying to understand yourself and you're trying to understand what you're doing, when you catch a label like that, it can be very helpful, right? It can start to point you towards an understanding if there's then like, okay, so then if that's the case, what do we do about that? How do we treat that? How do we navigate life with that? Right. Mm-hmm. You know, and what actually ended up happening though fast forward 15 years nobody would diagnose me as bipolar uh, so i keep saying bipolar maybe i'm <laughs> borderline personality disorder okay because borderline personality disorder symptoms are extremely close to the symptoms that somebody who's experienced trauma and who has unhealed trauma so like ptsd kind of Yes. Not to to put another label on it all. No. Yeah. In that general camp. Right. So this is where like, oh my gosh, like labels can only take us so far. Right. Right. And without being, again, we have to be, I know we're trying to be sensitive and trying to be aware because, but, but like I have so many clients in that same boat. Oh, I have this disorder and now what do I do in the rest of my life? I'm like, well, let's actually just deal with the symptoms and let's see what happens. Right. Um, and that I hope can be a relief to some, some people. It's also not meant to be shaming, right? I I don't want anyone to hear this and and walk away with any sense of like, oh gosh, because I identify as that, you know, that's a bad thing. All we're saying is that there are breakdowns, right? There are breakdowns that need to be addressed. And if they can be addressed, then that can be a very helpful, useful kind of tool in understand, understanding yourself and understanding others. But if it just becomes a label, then, and there's nothing backing that up or supporting the person and contextualizing it, then I think it does more damage than good. Yeah. Well, I think to some extent, I mean, another way of kind of positioning this is that, you know, things exist on a spectrum, not on, not on a binary scale, right? Right. And so, and so to your point, it's not about delegitimizing d- diagnoses or, or saying that all mental health, you know, professionals are, are out here misdiagnosing people. That's not the point at all. The point is that there's a, a that, so I'm, I'm, I'm getting lost in my own thoughts. Something you said earlier is that people think the most common misconception is people think that they are suffering through that alone. And I think that there's an interesting distinction there. And that is that as individuals, we are all unique. Like every individual is a unique person, but the things that happen in our lives are not, right? And so it's not that you are not unique, but the things that are happening probably aren't unique exclusively to to one individual. And so that these diagnoses can just simply hinder the ability to understand the nuance of the the unique individual. That's right. That's right. They don't, especially if it's just like, as it was for me, just kind of dropped in, in the space. And then, and then, you know, I, I know like one of my clients who was diagnosed with um, borderline personality disorder, her therapist would actually literally call her, like use her name. Oh, you're just being her name, borderline, borderline personality name. 
Wow. I'm like, whoa, like, uh-uh, this is not. <laughs> no, That's no, not no, no, the no. textbook either, right? No, right. So we just have to be careful. And and I think to just, you know, kind of bring maybe all of that together a little bit, what I'm feeling called to say is just to to really understand that we we have these experiences that are going to cause very specific outcomes. If I touch a hot plate, my hand is going to get burned. If you touch a hot plate, unless you have superpowers, your hand is going to get burned. Damn. <laughs> your hand is Sensitive going to get even, burned. So, yeah. Right? Right? It's not like there's something bad or wrong with me that my hand got burned. Right. You know, and when we experience trauma, the nervous system, the brain, parts of the brain are impacted. Mm -hmm. And so when we normalize that for people and we say, look, that's yep. just the injury. Now, how are we going to heal it? We can yep. do that. Let's do that. You know, here's how. Yeah. And I'm not going to make you guess. Oh my gosh, Walker. Like that was one of the reasons why I, I also left therapy myself and had some, you know, hesitancy about, you know, therapy, stepping into therapy. I just, I had too many experiences of asking, like I was getting to the place in my journey where I needed more information. I, like I often say, I help my clients become street smart about mm -hmm. trauma. Like they move out of the book smart because I was tired of sitting around and talking about what had happened and, you know, reviewing it again. And yes, I was getting insights and understanding, but you know, without there being anything to back that up, it was just a cute little insight, something I could journal about. Right. And again, that's important and necessary for a period of time. But I was reaching the end of that period of time. And I was saying to the people who were my mentors and guides, so what do I do about this? How do I actually change that? And I would get these kind of pat answers of like, well, the answer is within you. You already know. What would you do? <laughs> I was like, man, if I knew what to do, I wouldn't be sitting here paying you lots right. of money. Right. So, you know, um, so that's really my absolute commitment, you know, with everybody who makes the, the choice um, to work with me is that you're not going to walk away with a sense of just, you know, knowing more. You're going to actually change the way that you walk, the way that you talk. I sometimes, well, not sometimes, I always say to my clients, beyond surviving at the end of the day is a lifestyle. It's not a program. Um, it's the things that we do to keep ourselves and to support ourselves and to nurture ourselves so we can be in our adult self. We can be in our present day self. We can be our best, most wonderful self more often than not, not always. Not perfectly, but more often than not. Well, that's truly awesome. Um, and like I said at the beginning, I'm, I'm so grateful um, to have had the opportunity to, to talk to you about this today. And, and so, so glad to know that people like you are out here in the world um, helping, helping other people that need that help. And, and like you said, you know, the people can't see my face, obviously, but when you said the bootstraps thing earlier, I rolled my eyes as hard as I could, not at you, but at that <laughs> yes, yes, right. it's so, it, it's so frustrating. The only nugget of truth, you know, we want to go back to the duality. The only nugget of truth to that is that it is true that someone does have to at least reach out to you to contact you, right? Like yeah. you're not, you're not just cold calling people, <laughs> seeing if they, if they want to work with you. Um, so there is a, a, a some amount of, of people do have to take some initiative, but the whole bootstrap stuff paints it out to be like, it's all you on your own. And, and it couldn't be further from the truth. Like there are people who yeah. want to help. Right. Well, and that's what, you know, sometimes uh, most of my clients are coming to me. A lot of my clients, you know, are in their forties or in their fifties and, um, and they're, they've certainly tried lots and lots and lots of things. Right. So they, it's not that they haven't been intentional. It's not that they mm -hmm. haven't been conscientious and in the conversation with themselves. Mm -hmm. um, it's just that they're at a place in their journey where they now need different tools. It's yeah. kind of like I sometimes say, like if I, if I gave you a birdhouse and I gave you the wood and the nails and a spaghetti noodle and said, go for it, build it. Right. Like you could try really hard to like hammer those nails with the spaghetti noodle, right. <laughs> like really putting effort into it, but it's not going to get you very far. And so sometimes we have to just check and make sure are yeah. we using the best and tool. And sometimes we need to switch it up and get a right. hammer. And that's really my goal is to just make sure that the people I'm working with have the tools that can really maximize um, their healing 
and help them step into the vision that they have for their life. Because ultimately, Walker, the thing that pisses me the most off about abuse is that people lose their lives, right? They lose themselves. And, you know, this person who has caused harm may be in the picture. Most of the time is not. But the person is still suffering because of something that happened, you know, so many years ago, the consequences, the outcome, the fallout. And um, I like to think that every person I work with who reclaims their life and themselves is like a nice middle finger to my grandfather, (laughs) you know, and is is representative of the power. First of all, the power and beauty of who we actually really are, Mm. you know. At the heart of it, at the end of it, all that we ever really want is love and connection and having a sense of being known, being seen, not being judged and having some safe places and some safe people in our lives to be able to do that. And when we've been harmed by trauma, that can be difficult to create, but in getting the support to heal it, it gets a lot easier and then we can have those things that we really long for. That's awesome. Well, if I had a time machine, I would uh, I would have scheduled us two or three hours um, because <laughs> I love I love talking to you and this is fascinating. Thank and you. I told you at the beginning before we started recording that I don't I don't really have like a, a big list of bullet points, which is true. But even the tiny list that I have, I didn't get to everything that I wanted to cover. Um, but I, I, I know your time is precious, and, and so I do want to, to to wrap up here. I do want to encourage people again to check out your YouTube channel. I'll have a link for that. Obviously, the website is rachelgrantcoaching.com. Um, but then, you know, you also have a book, Beyond Surviving, the final stage in recovery from sexual abuse that we didn't even <laughs> didn't even hit on at all. Um, so uh, please, how should people, you know, get in contact with you? Again, there's a book, there's YouTube, there's your website, but how, how do people connect with you? Yeah, all of those are great options. And um, the other thing that I would suggest as a great place to start is to download my three stages of recovery checklist. So that's rachelgrantcoaching.com slash checklist. And I'll go into a little bit more detail than I've, I've done today about the victim survivor beyond surviving stages and a little bit more about what each of those stages are about and the kinds of goals and intentions to be thinking about the kinds of support to get that are in alignment with where you are in your journey. And it's a great way to just do a little kind of check in with yourself to get a little bit of a sense of, okay, where am I at in this process? And, you know, to be sure it's this nice little linear, you know, thing, but ultimately what's true is that you can be in one stage in one area of your life and in another stage and another, but on the whole, this checklist is going to help you kind of put some context to where you're at and give you some ideas about what might be the best thing to do as a next step. Awesome. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, Rachel. Uh, You're making the world a better place. And uh, yeah, I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. I was really happy to be here with you. Everybody listening, thank you for listening. And if there's anything I can do to be a support, please don't hesitate to reach out.
All right, guys. Well, that's going to do it for the show today. Thank you so much again to Rachel Grant for stopping by. I really, really loved having you on the show. Again, you'll be able to find links to Rachel's website and her YouTube channel in the show notes. So please look there. Also, I want to thank Misha Zarens for the music today. And of course, last but not least, thank you, listener, for listening to the show. I also invite you to check out my other podcast, Pick Up Your Sticks, which I co-host with Brett Lindley. Pick Up Your Sticks is a podcast about video games where we talk about why gaming matters. You can find Pick Up Your Sticks on all podcast platforms, so check it out. Again, thanks for listening. Have a great week. Stay up.